And it's kind of like Paul is saying, as he's saying, beloved, is that he's calling the Colossians and all of us here today to follow Epaphras' path, to take him for us as an example in order to make our life count for eternity. Would you turn to Colossians chapter 1? We are still going through the same passage, believe it or not. The same passage. We're going through the book of Colossians verse by verse. <clears throat> so from verse, we'll take it from verse 5 to verse 8. So Colossians 1 from verse 5 to verse 8. By the end, by the end of um, um, maybe next three or four uh, sermons, you should memorize every word in this passage by heart, right? Um, let's, let's read from verse 5 onwards. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So in verse, verses prior to that, you know, Paul is saying that he thanks God for the Colossians, that they are truly saved. And then he says in verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard <clears throat> in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Last week, as I was um, preparing this message, as many of you now know, that I actually received a phone call. And I was informed of this middle-aged man, a brother in Christ, that many of us know has gone to glory. Now, what I know of this man, that he was a very healthy, very active man. He worked most of his life as a security man. Um, he took care of his food that he eats. He used to eat very expensive organic food, by the way. There was nothing wrong with him uh, prior his admission to the hospital. Last Thursday night, he didn't feel too well. He was admitted to Sunshine Hospital, and not long after his arrival, he was declared clinically dead. Just like that. One minute alive, and the other minute gone. With no apparent reason, no preceding warnings. And it goes just to show all of us how fragile life is. How incredibly real and close death is to everyone. One minute your heart is beating and the next minute there's no more drum beats. No more pulses. No more. And your soul is launched into eternity never to return back to earth. Now, as I was pondering upon this, I just, I came up with a little illustration that I want to share with you all. 
We're all like passengers in a train called life on earth. There are different groups occupying this train. Let me, let me describe to you some of those groups of people that are, that are in this train of life. The first I call the first group, the self-exalting group, the big guy, the look at me kind of group. Some work hard to be in the first class of the, of the first carriage in this train. And, and they try to assert onto other passengers why they are the better travelers. Why they deserve the best seats in the best part of the train. Perhaps because they have a better IQ. Perhaps because their bank account is filled and flooded with money. That's the first group. Others are not really fussed whether they're successfully able to convince others that they're better. The second group is the self-preserving group. You know, the safety first party. And so long as they could extend their stay on the train as long as possible, they're fine. And they spend most of their duration in a train, their decisions, the sacrifices they make. They're trying to work out the probabilities of how to have the safest ride. They want to stay in the safest corner, the best geographical location, and which even group of people to associate with that will give them the best return for their investment in preserving their life on that train. And these kind of people, they, they are the kind of people that would hide under their seats if that's what it means for them to extend their stay on that train. And, uh, and they judge every action, whether it's right or wrong, based on how long people could hold onto their seat on this carriage. Before, of course, they hear their names get called at the perfect time to get off the train. Self-preserving group. Then there is the toys group. Toys group. You know, those, those that their goal in traveling is to accumulate as many stuff as possible before they get called to get off the train. I've got to get the better and, and bigger stuff. And they tend to live beyond their means. They have a big debt. And they're led to be enslaved to it so they can pay it off, of course. And that doesn't really matter so long as I get my hands on the bigger and better stuff. Then there are those that are comfort-seeking group. The feeling good kind of group. And then there is the worldly group. And there is the entertain me group. And there is the anti-social networking group into the phone and Facebooking all the time, but they're actually antisocial. Now, do you know what is common among these groups of people, the common denominator, what they all share? None of them look outside of the windows of the train. 
None of them see the shrieking anguish of hell on one side, and neither of them, none of them see the rewards of heaven on the other side. All have been weighed in the balance and found wanted. All their days are numbered. And each one will have his name called out. And everything you work for, everything that you worked hard for, will become all of a sudden meaningless. And the life that you're trying to preserve will one day turn into vapor. And the stuff that you worked hard to accumulate will either turn into dust or someone that you don't even know will eventually take it from you. And each one will be left naked before the Lord as we're all going to look back in our lives and we're going to realize that our duration in this train of life is but a split second in comparison to the eternal life that we will live once we get off. Who is wise among us but he who has both of his eyes fixed through the windows of this train and make all decisions with reference to eternity? That his life on earth, yes, may be in jeopardy. That he may be occupying the most rugged, rough seat on the train. But his eyes are set upon the hope that is laid upon for him in heaven. Outside of those windows. And his ears are hearing those who got off the train before him, cheering him on to run the race. Run harder and further, making his life count for eternity. My beloved, would to God that we would be this wise man. Would to God that you and I, brothers and sisters, make our lives count for eternity. And that's my thesis. That's my point. Of today's message. That our lives would count for eternity. It's all that matters. Now how do we do that? What does it look like to make our lives count for eternity? What example do we have? Is there any such person that we can follow his footsteps? Absolutely. Such a man was Epaphras. Here we are in this passage. Who in this passage is meant to be looked upon as the ideal example for all of us to follow his footsteps. This is where we're up to now in the book of Colossians. Why? Why is the ideal example? Because he made his life count for eternity. He was never distracted by the affairs of this world. He never fitted into any of these worldly groups that I spoke about. His life was not wasted. He didn't work hard in vain. This is why Paul called him beloved. You see this in your passage. Beloved, meaning very dear, very precious. Paul cherished the life of Pephras. And it's kind of like Paul is saying, as he's saying, beloved, is that he's calling the Colossians and all of us here today to follow Epaphras' path. To take him for us as an example. 
in order to make our life count for eternity. Now, what kind of example did Epaphras show us that we ought to follow? Let's have a look at three points. Epaphras spoke of Christ. Epaphras, number two, was a slave of Christ. And number three, Epaphras was a servant of Christ. Nice. Good example. Well, let's start with the first one. Epaphras spoke of Christ. He made his life count for eternity because he was busy speaking of Christ. What does it mean, speaking of Christ? Preached the gospel. He taught the way of salvation. So we now start reading verse 7. Just as you, that's the Colossians, you learned it from Epaphras. Learned what? What is it? Referring back to verse 6. And it is the grace of God in truth. Which is another way of saying the gospel. They learned the gospel from Epaphras. Learned this word meaning to educate, to keep on instructing. It's hard work. It requires reasoning, teaching, laboring, toiling. Now we zoom into Epaphras now in Colossians chapter 4 verse 12. It tells us that Epaphras who is one of your number. Meaning he was a Colossian. He received the grace of God in truth as a Colossian. Before the Colossians believed, Epaphras was a believer in a pagan city. And if we go back in time and place our feet in Epaphras' shoes, he would be looking all around him and he would see nothing but a barren city. Lost souls, men and women who were enemies of the Most High God. And Jesus, whom he now knows, whom he now adores and loves as his Lord and Savior, he is not reigning in the hearts of these people. Forgiveness of sin has not yet been preached to his people in the name of Christ. Now we can go further and analyze and based on what Jesus said, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Therefore, we can say that since Epaphras spoke of Christ, therefore his heart was burning in his chest. There is that gospel was like a form of fire. It was fire in his bones. Now, please note what Epaphras did not do. Epaphras didn't say, these Gentiles, these, these unbelievers, they're, they're like the dogs. They didn't say that. He said, look at him, you know, they, they love their sins. They're bathing themselves in their iniquity like pigs. I don't care. As long as I'm saved, that's all that matters. No, that's what we read. That's not what we read here. Another thing, Epaphras did not say, well, you know what? They're unbelievers. They need to know the gospel. What am I, what am I going to do? I've got to call somebody to tell them about the gospel. Quickly, let's SMS uh, Paul so he can come since he can give the gospel in a better way than I would ever do. No, he didn't do that. 
These people were his own families. They were flesh of his own flesh, his own neighbors, his own community. And so for Epaphras, to the extent that he received the grace of God, to the same extent he wants to share it with those whom he loved. So brothers, as you are seated in your train of life and you look around you and there are unbelieving children, co-workers, neighbors, you look outside of the window and you see flames of hell awaiting them. What do we do? What do we do about that? In the light of the reality of hell, the agony of hell, does our heart compel us to run with the full power of the gospel? Pleading with those that are hell-bound to repent and believe? Let me read to you a quote by Charles Spurgeon that we, many of us, I'm sure, know of. But let me remind you of that quote again. Charles says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. Let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. Brothers, sisters, I submit to you that Sharing the gospel, proclaiming Christ is the one business that we are here on earth, in your carriage, in your train, that you are employed to do. Well, that's, this is very strong. This is audacious statement. This is one, one business. Number one, the most important thing I would ever do. This is huge. Let me prove it to you. Have you ever wondered why God has saved you and yet left you here in this train of life? I mean, if God wanted, he, he could have taken you out. He could have made it your stop the moment you were saved and called you home. Right? But he didn't. Why not? What do you have to do on earth? What is the one thing that you can do on earth that you cannot do in heaven? William Arnott, a Scottish preacher, two centuries ago, he said this. <clears throat> the simple fact that a Christian is on earth and not in heaven is proof that there is something for him to do. And if he's not doing it, the neglect shows either that he's not yet a Christian or that he is a Christian who grieves Christ. What is the reason our, masters, our master left us here on earth and didn't take us home? Let me put it in another way. What is it that you can do on earth, as I said earlier, in your personal walk with God? Of course, you can do a lot of stuff here that you can't do in, in heaven. But what I'm talking about in your personal walk with God that you cannot do in heaven. You see, singing hymns, you should. It's a good thing. It's commanded in the scripture. But you know what? We can sing in heaven as much as we like. Pray, read the word. So should you read the word. That's how you know God's will. But you know what? In heaven, you will see God face to face. You will talk to him. You will hear from him directly. 
fellowship with the saints. You know how many times we fellowship with the saints and we'll continue to do that. That's, that's the way you grow. But guess what? Heaven will be full of saints. And we'll talk to them as much as we like. And the list goes on. See, God could have taken us out of earth and there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, but he did not. He left us in pain. He left us in sorrow. There's one main thing that we can do on earth that we will never do in heaven. Do you know what it is? To be his ambassadors. You can tell a condemned sinner about the mercy he can find in Christ. One day the gates of heaven will be shut and no more mercy will be granted. One day sinners will look for forgiveness and they will never find it. So if you're going to tell them to find forgiveness, you've got to do it when? Now. Well, you're in this earth. It must be done before you get off this train. I was thinking hard about this, but I'm going to do it. I've given up. I'm going to give you a third quote. <laughs> Spurgeon again said this. Please pay attention. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, Spurgeon says. And on the same way, he has sent his church. And she is a traitor to the master who sent her, if she is deceived by the beauties of taste and art to forget that to preach Christ and Him crucified is the only object for which she exists among the sons of men. The business of the church, Spurgeon says, is salvation. What is the reason why God has left you and I here on earth? I can think of 25 million reasons, and that is in Australia alone, why we're here on earth. Brothers, sisters, do you know of someone who is not yet saved, who on that same carriage as you, as your carriage, and is about to get off and jump off the cliff into eternal torment? Do you have a co-worker that you know of? A friend? A neighbor? Someone who is seated near by you by proximity in that carriage? You know something, brothers and sisters? God never makes mistakes. And there is a reason why he brought this unbelieving person into your own life. And it is the same reason why he left you here on earth. And is to share the gospel with that person. That you've got to be a beacon of light. And as according to 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and many other passages, your purpose is to direct the floodlight of Christ upon this man's mind so that he would believe in his heart. Jesus said, I came. And what was his purpose of him coming? To set the captive free. And when he established his followers, what was their purpose? The same as Jesus' purpose, to set the captive free. Right? And Epaphras, 
His business was also to teach the gospel, i.e. to set the captive free. And Paul is calling us to follow Epaphras' example. Before God calls us home, let it be your business to speak of Christ. Speak of Christ. Whether people will hear you or not, whether they will reject you or accept you, speak of Christ. Make your life count. Speak of Him. That's the first point. Now, as we come to halfway through the message, I want to thrust right there a crucial principle, so important to understand. Crucial principle. While Epaphras shows us a godly example that is to make your life count is to preach the gospel, it does not mean that all preachers of the gospel are godly. Okay, let me explain it in another way. Just like Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So also not everyone who evangelizes is an evidence that he's a, a man of God, nor does it even mean that he's a believer in the first place. Now you might say, well, I don't understand. This is, this is shocking to my system. I thought to make my life count is to speak of Christ. Okay, let me give you an example so you can understand what I mean. Suppose an, an ungodly man belongs to one of those worldly groups that we spoke about earlier, and he regularly attends a church gathering. And just suppose that bit by bit, his character is now being revealed and he's showing his true colors. And he would begin to think, oh no, what must I do? I mean, I love my worldliness. I don't want to let go of it. But also at the same time, I want to look goodly. I want to look godly. I want to be accepted by God. I want to be accepted by my community. What must I do? Well, I know while I hug my worldliness to my chest, yet I will evangelize like Epaphras so I can show that my life counts for eternity. Godliness is about who you are to the Lord before what you do for the Lord. It is about being before it's about doing. It's who are you to the Lord? What is your attitude of your heart? What is your being? For Epaphras, he was a slave to Christ before he was a servant of Christ. We'll continue reading. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, firstly, our beloved fellow bondservant. This is a one word meaning slave. Secondly, 
a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. So Epaphras counted himself as a slave of Christ before he served Christ in that exact order. A slave of Christ. That's the second point now. Second point. Slave of Christ. Let's define it. Let's explain what that means. And then we'll continue serving and we'll connect, them, connect the dots together. Slave of Christ. What does it mean to be a slave? A slave is someone who is viewed no more than just the property of his master. He's owned by somebody else. A slave has no right of his own. The Greek word for this word, for the word um, slave is doulos. And literally, it means one tied to another. And that is to say that one who is subject to the will of his master. <clears throat> now, we are all. Everyone, everyone in this room, whether believers or unbelievers, doesn't matter how godly you are or ungodly you are, everyone in this room is a slave of something or someone. We're either slaves of sin or slaves of God. The scripture tells us that when we were, we entered, we all entered into this world slaves of what? Of sin. Jesus says in John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Romans 6, 17 tells us that before we were redeemed, we were all slaves of sin. Brothers, we need to remember this always, that it is, it was our condition of our hearts, like all unbelievers are. We were consumed, so consumed by the lust of our flesh, of our eyes, and the pride of life. That we were rightly described to be enslaved to our sins. And our slave master, the devil, has cleverly deceived us into loving our slavery. And though we were under condemnation, the wrath of the mighty God abode upon our heads. And our taskmaster continually bruised us so deeply because of sin. Yet we loved our bondage. We loved it. But here is the gospel. That while we were still in the slave market of sin. Standing there. Miserable. Worthless. Unable to even shake off those shackles. Those chains. That chained us to sin. And even if we could shake them off, we would not do that because we were not willing to do so. And yet, in the fullness of time, what does the Bible say? 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you have been bought with a price. 1 Peter 1.18 says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or, or gold. Um, or <clears throat> From your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. We were not redeemed with precious metals. Even the most precious metals were not even able to shake us off from that slavery of ours. It says verse 19, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
Paul says in Acts 20, verse 28, that God purchased his church with his own blood. Brothers and sisters, Jesus purchased us to himself by his blood. We, are the, we can say that we are blood-bought people of God. And now, because we were purchased by a great God, we have a new master. We're under new management. But contrary to our old master, that cruel and harsh master, this new master, this redeemer of ours is so loving. He's so compassionate. He's so merciful that he ransomed us out of this enslavery of sin by his own life. And now Romans 6.22 tells us that all of us, all the believers, have become enslaved to God. We are all slaves to God. Well, that's good. But the question then rises is that if we're all slaves to God, why does Paul here single out Epaphras? And why is he saying about him, particularly him, as a slave of Jesus Christ? If we're all the same, then why singling him out? What Paul is trying to say here by singling out Epaphras is that Epaphras' attitude of his own heart reflects someone who is a true slave to Jesus Christ. And his slavery to Christ can be felt, it can be seen and heard and touched Epaphras identified himself to be a slave of Christ and you could not miss her even if you wanted to. Now what does this mean? It means that Paul could tell that Epaphras had this absolute subjection and devotion to Jesus Christ that he was so confident of it that he penned down our beloved fellow bond servant, slave of Christ. It means that Epaphras boasted in the fact that he's been owned by Jesus. Do we boast that we are owned by Jesus? It means that Jesus owned his thoughts. Jesus owned his heart and all of his actions. And you could see this in Epaphras' life. So for Jesus to be a master of Epaphras, it means that Epaphras lived exclusively for Jesus. That he's taking Jesus to be his portion, his inheritance, his everything to Epaphras. Whether his family would follow him or not. Whether he would be rejected by people or not. Whether he would be the most wanted and hated man in all of hell or not. He was a slave of Christ. And you could tell that he was a slave of Christ. Paul could tell that for Epaphras. Jesus defined his purpose of life, his goals, his dreams. Are we living as slaves for Christ? Are you showing that? 
Are you really showing that? Are you growing in that? So Epaphras spoke of Christ and he was a slave of Christ. Number three, he was a servant of Christ. And we continue and read, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf? And one thing that we can note is that Epaphras here was a servant. It's the very least thing that we can, can be identified here. Meaning he wasn't just a spectator. He wasn't just a consumer. He didn't come to be served. He didn't think of, oh, what would people think of me? Why are they treating, this, me, treating me this way? No, he was a servant. But he wasn't just a servant. He was a faithful servant. Faithful. It means Epaphras was not insincere. He was not disgenuine. He didn't serve only when he felt like it. He wasn't a begrudging servant. No. What does the text say? A faithful servant, a loyal, a reliable servant, one that you could count on. He was a hard worker for Christ. Faithful servant. He served because he wanted to serve. He was hungry to serve. He loved to serve. He would go to the brethren and he would say, what can I do for you? How can I serve you, brother? Faithful servant. Faithful servant. It means he didn't serve so long as his health was not compromised. Or so long as his bank account is safe. No, brothers, for Epaphras, our example, to make our life count for eternity. He was a faithful servant, meaning he served sacrificially. There was a commitment, commitment in his service. He doesn't give up. Faithful servants do not give up just because they, they faced a mountain, hidden mountain of trials. They continue. So firstly, Epaphras was a slave of Christ, but don't be mistaken. Epaphras was not a lazy slave, no. Secondly, he was a faithful servant. Well, you might say, well, very well, I get all of that. It makes sense. I see it in the text here. Thank you. But why this order? Why does it matter slave first and then servant second? It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether slave or not a slave. The point is he was serving. Or in other words, the question ought to be in our mind, what is the relationship between servant of Christ and a slave of Christ? What is the connection between the two? And what I want to do is I want to conclude the message by helping you to understand the importance and how essential it must be in order for you, yeah, in order for you to be a faithful servant proceeding to that, what is carrying that is the slavery of Christ. Slavery to Christ, I should say. 
I'll compact the answer into one statement and then I'm going to flesh it out for you. Why is it important to know and make sure that I must recognize, consider myself a slave of Christ before I serve Christ is because slavery to Christ maximizes the revelation of the glory of God. Long sentence. I'll help you to understand. So when I say this, slavery to Christ maximizes the revelation of the glory of God. You say, well, what does that mean? What do you mean by that? Let me tell you what I mean. Some people think of God, you know, the reduced God, puny God. And they say, poor God. Look around me. There's nobody following him in this community. Oh, I guess God is in need of my help. He needs the help of those genuine people, of those intelligent people, or strong and rich or powerful people to serve Him. Poor God. I've got to lend Him a hand. I'm going to serve in order to do God a favor. And what happens when we serve with this attitude? Your service will be no more than just a means to show off your cleverness and how great and awesome you are. How kind you are in helping God. Let's make it absolutely clear. God is not looking for people to serve him this way. God does not need the human riches or power to accomplish his tasks. What God is doing is that God's purpose in us serving is that through us serving to display his glory and his power, his, not ours. And so throughout history, what do we find? We find God tends to use those that are convinced of themselves that they are nobodies, that they are weak, that they are broken. Because when you know of your poverty, when we know, brothers and sisters, of our own limitations, only then do we truly then begin to depend on God's power, God's grace, God's sufficiency of all things. And as God fills your reservoir of himself, of his being, then your service will become genuine, sincere, and then you will be a channel through which the glory of God will be on display. You get this? Well, up to this point, you say, very good. It makes perfect sense. But what does that have anything to do with slavery? Everything. Why? Let me explain to you. Because to be a slave, it is not just uh, that you're occupying the lowest class. No, to be a slave means you're not part of any class since you're owned by your master. You're no more than a property. Owned. By your Lord. And when you consider yourself as a slave of Jesus Christ. With the true meaning of what this word actually 
spelled out like Epaphras was, you would be totally dependent on your master provision for everything in life. And so when you're empty of joy, when you're looking for fulfillment or satisfaction, who else would you go to but your own master, Jesus? And because you will find him true and faithful, that he will do it. That he will meet you with his infinite supply for all your needs. When you hunger for strength and love and your master will present himself to you as the bread of life that will sustain you forever. When you feel insecure and that there are savage wolves around you ready to pounce on you and to devour you. You find your master Jesus to be a great shepherd who will Hedge himself around you to protect you. When you put him even to test and taste that the Lord is actually good to his slaves. As a result, you will resolve that your master to be so attractive, so beautiful to you. And so you will reckon that your only boast is in him alone. Then, a question will be in your mind. Who would not want to serve such a master wholeheartedly? Who would not want to be faithfully, eagerly, relentlessly serve such an awesome master? Without slavery, serving. It's only a platform for your glory to be on display. But slavery to Christ turns service into worship. And serving this way will maximize the revelation of the greatness, how grandeur God is in your life. God does not want people to serve Him. He wants to work through people through your service to display his greatness it's only a means to an end and brothers this is how we make our lives count for eternity we speak of christ we become slaves of christ we accept that we accept it gladly. Slaves. From the heart. Not externally. From the heart. And then we serve Christ. Now I know some of you here are not believers. And I'm so concerned for you. I am so concerned for you here in this congregation that don't know the Lord, far more than I'm concerned for those that are outside. I'm so deeply concerned that you hear a message of how great and awesome Christ is, and yet your mind is just caught up with, hmm, what am I going to do next after I leave this service? Or, oh, have you checked out my lady's shoes? And that's the thought that is in her mind. Or how hard I have to work in order to earn money. 
whatever it is. And have just proven to be in that carriage of the life. As people who are wasting their lives away. Why am I concerned for those among us who are unbelievers more than I'm concerned for those outside? It's very simple. Because you're hearing the gospel week in, week out. You know the greatness of God. You now know how wicked you are. And you know the mercy of Christ, how he extends his hand to you week by week. Calling upon you to come to him, repent of your sin, to put your trust in him. To fall on your knees, to hand him over your sin. To tell him, Christ, have me. Have me to be your slave. Change me. Cleanse me. Breathe in me the breath of life. But you refuse. And in so doing, I want to tell you, you are hardening your heart. And it will come to a point in time where you will reach a point of no return. Your conscience will be numb and the gospel invitation will have no effect upon your life. No effect whatsoever. And your life on earth will be just simply a liability. Just waiting until you be cast into hell forever. Where you are only going to increase from wickedness to wickedness. Dear friend. I offer you to I offer you Christ right now, this moment. Don't turn your back on Christ. Don't spit on the only hand that could save you. I plead with you. Come to him. Give him all your sins. If he demanded righteousness that you cannot attain, perhaps you would have an excuse. But if he's actually demanding sin that you have plenty of in order to pardon you, why wouldn't you give him your sin? Why wouldn't you give him your wicked heart so he would change it and give you something far more purer? Something more wonderful. I plead with you. Divorce your old master, Satan. Who's deceiving you. Come to Christ. Give him your life. Tell him change me. Change me. Forgive me. I want to be yours. I want to be yours forever. Jesus said. He who comes to me. I will by no means cast out. Come to him. He will not cast you out. He will accept you. Jesus name. Let's pray. Lord God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is so clear. Lord, lift our eyes up. Help us to see through those windows. Help us to see that life is much greater and more grandeur than, than the train that we're in. Help us, Lord, to connect with eternity with with you christ through the windows help us to make decisions
that will render our lives worth living. In Jesus' name, amen.